0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sprocky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump.
0: They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door and run down to sell one and get a bugler can full of Sprocky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today I am honored to be in the studio with... Warden of ISCC, Jay Christensen, on his very last week... Just before retirement, and what is this? Thirty-nine years you've been an officer?
1: Not that long. Thirty-four. Uh, 34. Thirty-two years calendar-wise. Uh-huh. My certificate that I just received at my celebration says thirty-four years, but the state goes by hours. So in other words, I've done two years worth of overtime throughout oh, my career. Oh, So well, congratulations yeah. and
0: welcome to the show. Thanks for being Thank <laughs> on. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well. Can you just tell our listeners a little about
1: yourself, where you grew up, and when you began your career in corrections? Sure. Um, I was originally born in Iowa, and uh, in, in elementary school, we relocated to Colorado. And my older brother, when he came out of the military, had a scholarship to attend BSU. So he was moving up here by himself. My mother thought that I was a little bit more street smart, coming from a small area in Colorado where city life was not very big. She wanted me to come with him. So my older brother Glenn and I moved up here together and got an apartment in Meridian. And uh, I attended my senior year in Meridian High School. You know, I uh, I grew up on a ranch in Colorado. Some people say I'm still growing up, you know, but uh, I did a lot with motorcycles. I did a lot with horses. We We were very involved in rodeos and the sisters were all queen and, and my younger sister was queening around here a lot uh, after they relocated. Uh, and my father had visited us a couple times while he was up here and they really enjoyed when they came up here and visited. And We wound up all relocating here together. You know, my interest in the past has always been in mechanics and actually my formal education is in auto mechanics. I went to a Votech school and uh, shortly after uh, I got married, my father-in-law, that worked for Northrop Aviation in California, uh, recruited me to be a structural mechanic in a plant out there. And uh, so we relocated out to California and moved in with him in Torrance. But my job assignment was actually in Compton, California. So I was the minority at the plant. Uh, I, I got along with everybody great. I loved the job; it was terrific. Uh, but the area was very violent and. We had a child on the way. Then I had a couple, of, you know, events take place that just I just didn't want to be in that area, and I was, and to include that, I was a little bit homesick for Idaho uh-huh. and uh, family. So I put in my two weeks' notice, and uh, it was just very ironically in an area like Los Angeles, and this was actually in Torrance. I pulled into a Seven Eleven. I think I went in to get a soda or something like that, and. And a manager from the training facility in El Segundo, California, pulled in at the same time that recognized me from the training class. And he said that he had heard I'd put in my notice. He had come from Idaho, and as a matter of fact, he was a coordinator for, for the uh, fitness activities at the ISCI in the, in the early 70s. And he may have worked here, because I, I, I know that he was with Northrop for quite a while. Uh-huh. He gave me a phone number, that he wanted me to call when I got back here. He told me he thought I would do really good in this position. And the number actually was uh, a phone number to Larry Wright. Oh. And Larry Wright, uh, you pointed out his office when he was a lieutenant here uh-huh. at the old Penn, was a warden at, at a South Idaho Correctional Institution at the time. So I, I continued to call after I got back time and time again. And Never was able to get a hold of them, but the switchboard operator kept hearing my same voice calling, and <laughs> and she asked if there was something I could, she could help me with, and that was Judy Ogawa, and Judy Ogawa had started with the department in the 60s, yeah. and uh, not, she was not assigned at this facility, but uh, she worked with the females over in Nampa area, and when they opened up the new facility out in 73, then she transferred out there, and she was the switchboard operator, and I think... Uh, in your podcast with Mal- Calvin May, she was a switchboard operator that day when yeah. he called up and talked to her. That's Judy Ogawa. So <laughs> you uh, in the yard, <laughs> which I, I'm still in contact with her. I think I spoke with her about three weeks ago. Oh my! Yeah, gosh. She's, she's she's still living in Idaho. Oh, yeah. Oh wow. She coached me through the application process, and back then you'd go down and you'd get an application that you'd fill out at the Hall of Mirrors downtown. I think it's the J.D. Williams Building. Uh-huh. She told me um, do up a resume. She says get a bright colored piece of paper. Uh-huh and she says do you own a typewriter and I said no and she says spring for one (laughs) you know it looks more professional when you fill it out with a typewriter so that's what I did is I bought a typewriter and I followed all her advice I applied and uh, I got hired on in uh, in the summer of 89 as they were preparing for the opening of max they were still building max at that time and and like I say I'm still friends with Judy Agao to this day (laughs) she was one of my mentors her son was also another one of my mentors he he was already working there. He was a maintenance supervisor uh, when I started, and he also climbed through the ranks, and uh, he became, uh, before he retired from us, he was the deputy director for the Department of Corrections, and that's uh, Jeff Zamuda. Okay. He is now the director for the Kansas Department of Corrections, which okay. I, I'm still in touch with him on occasion, too. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're they're all, they're all great friends of mine. So you came in
0: through automotive repair, essentially. Like- yes. Like, how did you start working as like a correctional officer?
1: You know, I think probably a lot of it is, is, is just due to my size. You know, I'm yeah. six foot three and and uh, and strong build. Uh-huh. So you know that it, you know it was natural and uh, grew up on a ranch and you know I've always been able to handle myself. And back then that was you know it was, that was a big deal. You know, uh, not so much today. Uh-huh. It's it's really and even more so back then that people even deem and talk about. You know, it's how you handle yourself verbally is more important you know how you speak with people how you communicate how you're able to evaluate situations and 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 deal with them but I I can tell you that my auto mechanics have really helped me in corrections Mm -hmm. the way doors open and close you know the 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 systems are all mechanical systems they're not like your typical residential type systems Uh, throughout my career I've even done some uh, mechanical work for the department you know i done some painting of vehicles. I've done some modification of vehicles. Uh, I spent a year and a half working as what's called the security systems foreman. That's basically the locksmith for the department. I worked on central office. I worked on all uh, the facilities south of town. And uh, I don't know if I told you this year or not, I even worked down here. Uh-huh. There was a key lost up on the death row here and they were unable to get into a cell. They found that out when the light burned out inside the cell. Uh-huh. And uh, they asked, they called out and asked if there was somebody to come to get into there. And so I came down and I, I uh, removed the lock and I had to use a mirror and uh, a grinder on the inside of the cell and remove the lock from the inside. And then I, uh, once I got the lock uh, removed and out, uh, I rekeyed it and left you guys a new key for it. That's right. The large folder Adams keys. Uh It's called a paracentric key is what it's called.
0: Paracentric.
1: Paracentric. Paracentric. Yeah, there's uh several different types of keys in the in, in prison systems. Those large large brass skeleton keys. Yeah. Typically they're either a southern steel or a Folger Adams. They're called paracentrics. And they have another key that's that's fairly large, it's more than what you see on a house, an extremely large key. That yeah. that would be called a mogul key. I
0: mm-hmm. feel like that would be such a an asset to have a prison administrator who's who's worked, you know, as a correctional officer and also knows all of this about mechanics and how doors operate, locks operate. I feel like that's a, uh, is that pretty typical amongst?
1: No, it, it's not typical. <laughs> and, and like I say, I think it it, it did help me throughout yeah. my career. When a lot of things would come up that had maintenance uh-huh. issues in it and stuff like that, they, a lot of times they would consult me as I came up through the ranks, nice. uh, sometimes utilize me. I'll give you an example. I promoted to sergeant at the maximum security institution. Uh-huh. On my first day there, I'm walking through the units with the captain and the captain's telling me about a problem that they're having in A block at max or, or B block. It was B block. The, the problem was, is the doors, they would, they, they're sliding doors, they open and as they close, there's a gap on each side of the door. Okay. And more so on the sliding side okay. uh, for the clearance between the door and so forth. And what they were doing is uh, they were, loading up like cups with uh, urine and feces and they they called it baptismal of the staff oh, and so as the staff would walk by there they would splash that crack the, and and wow. and they were able to occasionally hit the staff members and i suggested to them as i was walking by i said you know what we could do we could contact one of the local steel companies and just order angle iron from this distance up to this distance <sighs> And we can just weld it in place, and then they they, they couldn't access that crack anymore. And then he, he said, really? And he <laughs> says, how about this? Here's another problem. The doors, once you release them, they can just throw them open, and we can't do leg restraints. And I said, well, how about if we drill a hole right here in the track and carry a little garden variety hitch pin, and we just push it into the hole every time we want to put leg restraints on? So my first day as sergeant I was reassigned <laughs> and I spent the next uh, couple weeks drilling holes and welding <laughs> wow.
0: that's amazing wow yeah. so you've really, you've left your mark like probably all throughout that.
1: right right wow. and in my retirement um one of my former colleagues that has been with the department of corrections over there for a very long time uh, came over and and spoke I hadn't seen him I don't know 15 years yeah And he told me while he was here, he said he presented that idea to Oregon Department of Corrections. And he says they're finally, he says he presented that a long time ago. They had the same problems. And he says they're finally uh, going to bite on it.
0: Are you heading over to do that one too? (laughs) No, I'm not.
1: (laughs) However, I must say I am very, very interested in, the state has recently developed a part-time program for retirees and for... People that had left the department for other reasons, but they left on good accord. Mm -hmm. The pay is still a little bit up in the air, but there's a possibility that, you know, if I was to apply after 90 days of retirement, they they do a background test, they check to make sure I haven't gotten any trouble, you know, since I left the department. (laughs) And uh, uh, they can bring me back at potentially the rate of pay I would have been as an officer Uh. when I left. And I could go in and cover just some overtime needs on the weekends where yeah. the overtime needs is, you know, the greatest. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't exceed 19 hours a week. I can't work on uh-huh. a weekend. You know, there's some rules around it before it affects your percy. Uh-huh. So yeah. uh, I'm very interested in that program. Uh, it's a way for me to, you know, keep my toe in the water, so to speak, and, yeah. and uh, stay in touch with corrections. It's such a big part of my life. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's almost, it almost becomes part of your identity. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it does become part of your identity. Definitely. So, yeah. And it yeah. sounds
0: like you put your life into it. Like, yeah, of course you don't want to. Yeah. The
1: majority of my life has it. been there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Going all the way back, can you talk about your training when you did become an officer? And
1: yeah, it's it's much different than what a lot of the people received here. Yeah. Or yeah, you know, I listened to your podcast with Calvin May, and he and and he received very very little training before yeah. they put him to work. Pretty much on the job is mm-hmm. what he received. Uh, so when I, I started to work for the department, the training academy was here at the Old Pen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, now, uh, my academy was the largest academy that was ever put on by, this, by the Department of Corrections, and that's be, that was in preparation for the opening of the maximum security institution. There was 125 of us when we started. So what they did is they allocated buildings out in at Gowan Field. We had a five-week academy there. And we went through all different types of training that many of the similar training that we have today, it was named a little bit different, maybe had a little bit different curriculum in it. There was some correspondence courses that was required that was put on by ACA. Part of that class was that while you're going through the academy, you had to complete a correspondence course with the American Correctional Association. And it was a a correctional officers course. And they would test you on that on Fridays, as well as a test from what you've learned in class. Okay. And so you had to pass basically both. And then after that five week academy, uh, went out and I had, uh, I believe it was two weeks of on the job training where I worked with alongside somebody else. Uh-huh. And then after you complete that two weeks, they could either extend it or release you and they released me and then i start getting assigned positions. Okay. Um, uh, my first year, the, uh, bid was based on, you know, uh, between the other 125, 124 people out of the academy. It was based on how well you did in the, uh, the academy. And I wasn't the top scorer, but I scored high enough that I was able to get a day shift position. And I was very, very pleased about that. So
0: yeah, I didn't realize that you know, your score would determine your it, and it still has.
1: holds true today. Yeah. If you come out of an academy that has thirty five people in it today, mm-hmm. the top score is going to be the one that has the most seniority for the bid purposes. Gotcha. So Interesting. It, that's a valuable piece. Yeah, pays yeah. to study. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so what
0: positions have you held within the Department of Corrections throughout your career?
1: Almost everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I started as a correctional officer in, in nineteen eighty nine and that was at ISCI. Soon after, uh, starting as a correction officer, the, the following year, mm-hmm. uh, I became part on the tactical team. There was required reading that came with the tactical team. Uh-huh. He, back then, um, you've heard the, re- the saying, good old boys, right? Uh-huh. Well, I'll, I I'll tell you, to get on the tactical team back then, you had to be sponsored. Uh-huh. Somebody had to say, we want him on the team. Yeah. And so they would sponsor you, and the team would actually take a vote of whether they let you on the uh-huh. team or not. And then part of that, and part of that, is you had to do some required reading, and it was a book called The Tactical Edge. They still use that name in today's academy, mm-hmm. or the uh, Tactical Edge Award is is given to the person that you most likely be beside in a touchy situation on a tier. Yeah, and that's that's the Tactical Edge Award. I'm not sure everybody knows where that name came from, but uh, one of my uh, former tactical team members, he came out of my academy. His name was Kerry Lawfernboy, who was an instructor at Post for a very long time. I'm sure he's the one that developed it because uh, I don't know who else who had those ties.
0: Yeah, you've got to trust that person who's with you. I yeah. Mean, I get yeah. that. Okay.
1: After working um, as a correctional officer mm-hmm. and being on the tactical team there at ISCI, I transferred to SICI in 1994. My placement going over to SICI was with a specialty area. Uh, that Larry Wright had developed, and it was called Special Projects. And this Special Projects, what they did is, they contracted out offender labor for a profit, and they would contract them out to city, state, and federal agencies. A staff member would supervise a crew and go out. My first year was uh, spent as a trail crew officer, where I'd put a backpack on, and we'd hike into the mountains for 10 days at a time. Most of the time, I was out of radio contact. And uh, we go in for 10 days at a time. We'd camp out, and we'd work on trails that entire time.
0: Did you kind of bond with the, the prisoners that you were, you were
1: going really to? It's really a different setting. You, you know, that might have been, uh, you know, one of the pivotal points in my career because yeah. I was able to see transformations in, in, in a lot of the offenders while we were out there. A lot of them had never worked before. Uh-huh. My position was basically to supervise them. And uh, a lot of them, you know, they'd be handling hand tools and, they get blisters on their hand, and they're not used to handling tools, you know. And they never had a job because drug dealing drugs is not a job, you right. know. And yeah. first couple days, they might be wanting to quit. They're trying to figure out every excuse to get out of work. And you just continue pushing them mm-hmm. and mentoring them. And, uh, you know, I found one of the best ways to do it is to do it myself, pick up a tool and do it myself. Yeah. And then a lot of those guys that, that, that I talk about that were, you know, were wanting to quit, you know, at the very beginning – at the end of the ten days, they'd be standing, they'd be the last one to leave the work site. They'd be standing there over their shovel admiring the bridge they built and proud of themselves. And a lot of times that was the first time, you know, you were able to see them proud of something they had accomplished. Yeah. And so it was it was a very, very good experience for me to see that. I've worked fire lines with the inmates. There was a lot of times where I actually had to put trust in the inmates that had more experience with fires than I did that we were doing it correctly. You know, I had to sometimes follow their lead, you know. And yeah. some of the inmates were actually de- designated as crew leaders. They'd call the shots of when to bail or when to throw more dirt. I worked right alongside with them. I'd cut line with them. I'd throw dirt with them, uh, fight the fire with them. And uh, I, I think it garnered me a lot of respect that I didn't just stand back and watch them do it. Mm-hmm. So
0: That program that's, that was recently kind of ended temporarily, or...?
1: It was slowed down. Was slowed down. Uh, you know, it's it's been widely used, yeah. not only just in the state of Idaho, mm-hmm. but nationally. We had one incident down in, in Utah yeah. where a bad player got outside of his camp and, and made some news. Yeah. And so it, it brought attention to the program, and it's put a, it's put a damper on it, that's for sure. Yeah. But there is still special projects going out on right. different crews. We just... I don't know as if we've had a whole lot of contributions since then for firefighting. Right. But I'm sure it'll be returning. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can't let the actions of one person, you know, dictate, you know, what happens to thousands in the future.
0: Are they still cutting trails and doing things like that? What kind of You know,
1: I'm not sure they if they've got trail. There may be some trail crews yeah. uh, coming out of the institution up in Orfino. Okay. The trail crew was actually funded by off-road stickers when I was doing that. I do know that there is a lot of trail work going on. I don't know as if we are, have any contracts on that or uh-huh. not. There's been talks about getting back into it from here, but yeah. uh, it's it's quite possible. Yeah. After I came out of projects, it was that Jeff Samuda I was mentioning earlier, uh-huh. I believe he may have been a deputy warden or an associate warden at that point. Okay. We had a vacancy in what's called the security systems foreman's position. And that security systems foreman position he, he knew I had a mechanical background, mm-hmm. and he asked me if I'd be interested in going into that. Um, offered me a little bump in pay to go into that, and uh, so I went into that. And uh, much to my surprise, I was a natural, you know, uh-huh. when creating locks, mastering locks, and so forth like yeah. that. It's really math. There's a lot of math involved. Yeah. And um, it, it all just seemed to make sense to me, yeah. and everything just fit into place. A lot of the locking systems at ISCI were very mechanical. They were, uh, they were purchased from a facility in Texas that was never built and retrofitted to fit into ISCI, and uh, they required a lot of maintenance and repairs to take place in there. And uh, I spent a lot of time working on what they called the lock lines. So, yeah, I got to know those pretty well. Yeah. They've since been replaced.
0: Okay. But, yeah. I was going to say. Um,
1: so, you know, after my time as, as locksmith, my, my heart really was back in security. Mm-hmm. There was a corporal position open, and uh, I, I tested for corporal and for sergeant. And I had, All along I had been testing for corporal and sergeant. Uh-huh. A corporal position was offered to me at SICI uh, where I would be the operations corporal for the special projects area. And I went there uh, in uh, back to special projects where I wasn't actually going out with the crews. Mm-hmm. I was managing the crews that went out. Gotcha. And uh, shortly after that, I was offered a position as sergeant at the maximum security institution, and I accepted that and moved over there.
0: Well, how was that transition from going to this kind of minimum to max?
1: It was pretty extreme back then. Yeah. Um, and back then, there was we were going through a major change in the inmate culture at that time. I'll tell you, when um, I made sergeant, you had to be in the top five in order to be offered a position.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, they had two positions open over there. I was number 19, and the only reason why I was offered a position, that's how many people turned down the job to go to MAX oh before they got to me. Yeah, what was this culture like? Well, <laughs> um, it was kind of the beginning of the security threat group culture. We had um, uh, the introduction of the Aryan Knights yeah, about yeah. that time. Mm-hmm. I promoted the lieutenant there at MAX. huh Uh, Later on, transferred to ISCI. And then I later became an emergency coordinator for the department. I actually spent time all over the state training people in emergency preparedness. And then uh, after that, uh, after about a year and a half of that, I made deputy warden at the maximum security Mm -hmm. institution. I transferred to ISCI later on as deputy warden. I spent the majority of my time as a deputy warden at the minimum custody facility at SICI. A year after the transition at ISCC, where uh, went from private facility to state uh, facility, the deputy warden over there had retired, and the warden asked me to come over as his deputy warden of security, and so I, that's when I made my move to ISCC. When the warden Randy Blades he had promoted into the deputy chief position, uh, that's when I applied for warden, and I I, I got that warden's position. Wow,
0: so that's about 2018.
1: Somewhere in the, yes, yeah. Okay, um, I actually in 2017 I was acting warden wa- oh. when he had left. And I was in that position when I was selected. What a career. Oh yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Know. It it sounds like I can't hold a job because <laughs> <laughs> I've been all over the place. Is that fairly common to, to kind of jump from
0: one institution to another?
1: You know, the there's matter? some people, you know, we I've got another colleague that's retiring right now Um, that is a sergeant at ISCI, and uh, he's got uh, 20, 20-some years there. He started there, and he's been there his entire career. Wow. Okay. Um, there's another warden that's, that's retiring with me on the exact same day, and uh, he's a lot like myself. He's been around you know, multiple different places. I, I always encourage staff to move around because it's my belief that it keeps the job young. Mm. But there's some people that just prefer to stay in the same place. <sighs> Calvin May was at ISCI when he started, and he was at ISCI when he retired. He <sighs> never moved, never had an interest in moving. Uh, and yeah. I believe he had 36 years uh,
0: yeah Calvin May you can check out I did a stool pigeon Saturday with him during our disturbing justice season he was the officer who was held hostage during the 1980 disturbance um, at Idaho Department of Corrections so just just a out.
1: wonderful human being uh, anybody that knows him is very privileged just oh, to know him He is
0: so. such a oh, such an amazing yeah. man yeah.
1: I saw another one of your podcasts It talked about uh, the disturbance from 1973 here and mm-hmm. as described by some of the staff, Ralph Elston being one of them, oh. Milton Edgerton, Edgerton. Yeah. Dan Mahoney. Mm-hmm. Dan Mahoney was my captain when I started. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, Ralph Elston, I got a little story about and I'm sure he's, <laughs> he's not, he's probably not around anymore, but yeah. uh, I can remember he was one of the ones that on my OJT was walking me around the fence line and he pointed up to that tower and he says that, that officer up there was taken hostage in 1980. I don't know why they put him in a tower. He'd never shoot it if there was an escape. <laughs> yeah. A couple weeks later, there was an escape. And the closest tower to the escape did not catch it. However, that tower that had Calvin May and it did. So we had three guys escape out the front of ISCI. And uh, I believe Calvin shot nine times and, and hit one of them in one of those shots. And it was... 300 yards, in the dark, running, shooting with open sights. The other two gave up at that point. Probably good good reason to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. I, and I don't believe we've had an escape attempt at ISCI since that day. That's amazing. I, have there been any, any escapes since
0: you've worked there, outside of any of the other prisons?
1: Well, there has been. Or attempt, what they, they, they talk about walkaways. And, uh-huh. uh, some of them have been escapes from the minimum custody facilities. Yeah. Not from the medium. There has been some from the maximum. I've gone out and trekked on foot, walking through the canyons and looking for people. Uh, During my special projects time, uh, there was one that walked away from a work crew, not my work crew, but a different work crew. That was, I believe, in 1995. And as I was a deputy warden at the minimum custody facility at SICI, uh, we had one that walked away from a correctional industries work crew working on the public safety building over in Nampa. He was later recaptured in... In Meridian um, my investigation sergeant came in and told me well at least we've got a perfect record now nobody's gotten away and I said uh, no that's not true I remember one from when I was an officer that's never been caught uh-huh. and she goes well I've always been told there's never been one that's got away and I said yeah there is one that's got away yeah. and she goes well who would that be and I had to think a little bit and the guy's name was Timothy Dove uh-huh. he would walked away from a work crew up in Idaho City and she came back into my office later on that day and she says, you're right, he is escaped. And I, I found the warrant for him on Ada County, but it's never been entered into NCIC. And and so that was overlooked all those oh years. So she contacted Ada County and they said, you're correct, it was never entered into NCIC. So I contacted the fugitive recovery team. Oh it wasn't but three days they had it back in custody he was living out of a teepee in some mid-eastern state and uh, uh, he had just changed his birth date by one year Um, but he was pretty identifiable he was missing one finger and uh, they brought him back here I wrote the DOR you know many many years later because I was the only one that actually was working there at the time (laughs) and uh, he was served as DOR I don't think he served any additional time for that after he came back. I think he I think they released him not too long after that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: He was in originally for just this insufficient funds, which was common back then right. it's, it's not now. Yeah, it, it's yeah. that's not the case anymore. But he was simply in for insufficient funds. Uh, he was really not a prison type of guy anyway, yeah, you know. So, he yeah. was not really a harm to the public and and I'm 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 sure it was seen that way. So,
0: did you have any really tense moments, dangerous moments while you were an officer or
1: It must have been about 91. I was a correctional officer in Pendine. That's the cafeteria out there. And uh, I was was a correctional officer in Pendine for a couple of years. And, you know, you oversee the feeding and everything in there. One evening, um, the uh, inmates were extremely rambunctious. There was some things being thrown. You could tell there was just a lot of heat Mm -hmm. taking place. So myself and another officer... Moved to the outside front porch of Pendine to uh, get out of there. And uh, while we were in there, I could hear a couple of the inmates talking about how they come out. They should just come out and overpower us. Yeah, I have no idea why I did it, but uh, maybe I was just young and maybe pride a little bit. But I walked right back inside and grabbed those two guys by the collars, brought them out, and put them on the wall to restrain them. The shift commander did order go to the towers, go to port arms when that was taking place that disturbance continued, you know, throughout the night uh-huh. that went on for 20 hours. I believe we did 20 some cell extractions that night uh-huh. and, and before we hit it back under control. So the intel that came out is that it was a planned disruption to draw our attention off so they could assault some, uh, sex offenders uh-huh. down in one of the units. Gotcha. So wow. that was a, that was a pretty tense moment. We've had, uh, since I've been an administrator, we've had several other very tense moments like that. Yeah. Uh, You've probably heard of the recent H-Block incident. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, had, we had that. No we've had, a uh, yeah. few years ago, we had uh, an STG um, uh, violence outbreak in in one of the neighboring facilities, and it finally spread over to our facility wow. as well. Yeah. There's been, um, you know, some violent attacks, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in my time. Um, we had uh, one officer that... He was attacked by, by an offender, and a razor was used on him, and his throat was cut, and we actually had to airlift him out of the recreation yard at Maximum Security Institution. Um, we've had some serious assaults on staff over time, you know, and thankfully, you know, knock on wood, that yeah. we've never lost an officer in a line of duty. And as far as I, as far as I know, yeah. we are the only state that has never lost an officer in a line of duty. Yeah, even here, there's there were no yeah. no deaths, there were assaults, but. Yeah. Yeah, no deaths. So a lot of the staff that came from this facility, you know, like those names I was giving you, the yeah. I, I I knew all them. Uh-huh. Um, you know, my first supervisor was Ralph Griffith. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think most of the old pen stories you would hear either had one of two names in it. It either had Ralph Griffith or it had uh, Joe Munch in it. You know? Those were the two, two 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 typical stories you would always hear. Yeah but ralph griffith was my my first supervisor he's wow. he's no longer with us he he spent a lot of time uh, he was pretty close with a man named everett atkins everett atkins also came from here uh he yeah. was known as one of the tower officers always a tower officer
0: uh,
1: everett atkins was a was a great man ralph griffith was difficult to work for yeah. would, I'll, I'll i'll put it to you that way <laughs> <laughs> was he just hard on you or? He, he had a Very unique way of expressing his orders. Gotcha, (laughs) and 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 they had had a good amount of volume behind them. We always found it very ironic that he could yell and scream and cuss orders at you, and then you and before without blinking an eye fall asleep. (laughs) Oh wow!
0: (laughs) That that reminds me, uh, Joe Munch. Uh, you, You mentioned Joe. Uh, did you interact with him very often? I
1: did not he wasn't working for the department when I started he had already moved to Ada County I did know him Uh I had run into him several times in the public and even uh funny story (laughs) sleeping again there was a there was a place in Meridian out on Meridian Road in Victory and one of my friends had some cars there for sale and a lot out behind this barn and that was one of Joe Munch's favorite places to park for, look for, watch for speeders. Well, he'd doze off occasionally. And one day I walked up beside his car while he was asleep there and I'd tap on his window and he, he wasn't waking up. And so I stood there and make sure he was breathing and everything and to make sure he was just asleep. And I went, I went ahead and left.
0: Wow. That's
1: uh, one of the stories awesome. that I used to hear about Joe Munch when I started there is that, uh, you know, he didn't like that we had fences at ISCI. He liked the walls here. Yeah, And it has, you know, that Constantine wire on the top. And he talked about, that's ah, not going to slow anybody down. Uh-huh. Before long, there was a pool going, you know, can you really get over that fence or not? Joe Munch demonstrated that he'd get over both fences in a matter of just seconds. And he, he did that in front of everybody. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yeah. That's what. That's the story. You know, it it's it was probably it probably grew out of control over the years. Yeah, yeah. He he probably (laughs) he probably got down on the other side and was all sliced up from the concertine (laughs) wire and stuff. But uh, dogs were probably barking. All the towers were watching, and you know, an escape would not really have taken place. Right. Yeah. But the story is, yeah, he got over in a matter of seconds. (laughs) Wow. So many correctional stories are a lot like fishing stories. They grow over the years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the story I used to hear about Ralph Griffith down here is is that there were several inmates that had tunneled out of here. Uh-huh. And he had figured it out that they were tunneling out and he decided rather than catch him in the act tunneling uh, and pull him backwards that he would stand where they were coming out. And, and that's the story is, you know, that that they uh, uncovered the ground uh, to look up at uh, Sergeant Griffith with a shotgun in his right. hand. <laughs> That's
0: that's great Yeah, I've heard a couple like that Yeah, yeah.
1: He had a nickname Bulldog It's because he looked like a human bulldog <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh I need to track down a photo of him that's
1: Yeah, cool. yeah and If you ever find a photo of Ralph Griffin You'll see why he was called Bulldog <laughs> he, he actually was a good guy He just had yeah. to get past the way he supervised yeah. You know yeah. uh, he, he knew prison culture He was well respected Yeah, And uh when he issued your orders, you just you followed him. Yeah, you know, you don't yeah. question him; you just follow him. Uh, can you
0: just talk about this this prison culture and the transition that you kind of experienced and witnessed?
1: Yeah, that's something I I would like to speak about. You know, um, you know, I think the staff culture mm-hmm. has has made a, a transformation over the years, much for the better. And I'll give you an example. Early on in my career as an officer, I had a supervisor that was experiencing some mental health issues. And he shared with me that he had had ideations of uh, assassinating the, the ship commander. And he shared with me his exact plan on how he's going to do it. I mean, he had the cost of the ammunition down to a T. He gave me time frames. Uh, it involved executing a couple of staff members. And, and I brought this information forward. And I can tell you that I was completely vilified back then by the, by, by other staff for that. Yeah. Back then, the culture of a lot of the staff was to follow the culture of the inmates, you know, where they say snitches get stitches and right. and don't be a rat, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I found out afterwards that many of the staff had knowledge that he had these ideations, wow. but they didn't bring it forward because they didn't want to be a, what they considered to be a rat. Right. And, that, and that's fallen a lot of the inmate culture you yeah. know, that they that they did you know fortunately people that were like that didn't last in this career a long time yeah. you know so i can remember specifically um the two people that that were part of his plat, plot to assassinate they were appreciative of me bringing it forward oh yeah <laughs> um there's another staff member and i don't know if he was sergeant or officer back then that he was actually related to the person that told me this story and he contacted me and told me I did the right thing. Yeah. And that was kind of the first contact I had had with him. And we are still very close friends today. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, I just spent time with him last week. Yeah. Yeah. And he retired as a deputy warden. Okay. And uh, he's still local here. I think he went back to work doing some work for the state. Okay. Or uh, his contracts work for the state. Yeah. So now today, that that would not be a vilified type situation, uh-huh. you know. He had this information, it had to come forward. I'll tell you another one that, that came forward and thanked me for that. It was actually the person. He said he knew the thoughts were wrong. He had to yeah. get them out of his head. We did actually vocationally rehabilitate him, and oh, he put okay. him into a different career, type of career. Yeah. But he was suffering some mental health issues, mm-hmm. and he, he knew what he was thinking was wrong, and he was afraid that it would actually act out on it. Yeah. Now today, um, nobody would question that being the right decision to do. Right. And um, I'm looking back, and, and I don't think I ever questioned bringing it forward. Uh-huh. But uh, everybody else did. They saw it <laughs> as being wrong, you know. So, you know, that's just an example of how a lot of the culture has changed uh-huh. with, with the staff. The staff that, that you would experience back then that were, as you know, badge heavy, yeah. um, very common, yeah, very rare today. Uh-huh. I've actually had supervisors order me to kick an inmate's ass. I just do my own translation and restrain them and take them to yeah. segregation. And but uh, you know those type of orders would not be issued today. The, the uh, workforce is different today. You know that you know, some of our some of our top notch staff are you know they look nothing like me. You know? Uh-huh. you know I I've got some I've got females that work for me. They're you know a buck soaking wet. You know <laughs> as some of our top staff. You yeah, know yeah. Uh, some of our best communicators, you know, and uh, so multitaskers, and mm-hmm. there's there's so much diversity and so much talent out there now. Wow. Our biggest problem with the staff right now, I would say, is bridging that gap between administration and the staff. That is communication. Yeah, the avenues that we had to communicate with them is. You know, it was email, and we have, uh, I use SharePoint pretty heavy. It's almost like a Facebook for work. Yeah. And uh, we can do Zoom, ship briefings. Mm-hmm. I did one uh, last week, and I'll be doing another one tonight, uh-huh. you know, where they all log in and talk to them over computer, a lot of things like that. But really, really what they want, what they desire, what they really need is face-to-face. And unfortunately, yeah. in a facility that has two different cards and two different shifts right. and three uh, Over 300 employees, I just can't make it to all of them. But that's almost their expectation is that that's what they get, that Mm face-to-face. So the best way, really, that we've got to be able to get that done is just make sure that communication goes all the way down to the ranks so the supervisor they are seeing is able to give that communication to that they desire. There's always that gap is what information are they wanting, what information do they need, what information can we give them, and how do we deliver that to them? When I was an officer, we we didn't, you know, the only communication I wanted was, what do you want me to do? Yeah. You know? And yeah. and Where then I, I'd go do that. Yeah. But it's it's really a different workforce today than it was back then. Yeah. There are some people that are much better at, at communicating the needs of the workforce out there than personally I am used to myself. Yeah. And uh, I, I recognize that. Uh-huh. I recognize that's one of my weakness, weaknesses. And uh, I... In a sense, I'm a little bit like Ralph Grip. if I give it an order, I just want it to be followed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't want to have to explain my reasons behind the order uh-huh. and, and you know the feelings that were invoked in order to, to give the order. You know? So yeah. that's the, the new generation of our workforce. Uh-huh. But in that generation of the workforce, many of them are out there because they want to do something good for society. Yeah. And that's not so much what I used to see in the past in the past it you know was it's a job and I'm a back then we were we weren't ashamed to be called prison guards right, <laughs> you know yeah, and yeah. there we were going through a transition when I started they didn't want to be viewed as prison guards by the community they wanted to be viewed as correctional officers and one of the transitions we were going through was getting away from the old uniform that looked like you know a turnkey uniform yeah. to a uniform that resembled so much of what to of Boise police wore and, and that's what I wore for many years was that the blue polyester pants uh-huh. and, and the uniform, the shirt, class A's and class B's. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought they were a very professional looking uniform. I was always proud to wear it. Uh-huh. Now we're into more relaxed, uh, a lot like what I'm wearing right now, yeah. except tan BDUs and, and it's a polo shirt. And it's, it's more into more of a relaxed environment, now, which I think is, as they put it, softer with the, with, uh-huh. with the Avengers. So yeah but identifiable in 2021 the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories as a part of the commemoration the old Idaho penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked lived and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 storytelling program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. With the inmate culture, personally I believe it's gone the other direction I think it's. I believe it's gotten worse Um, when I started security threat groups were not really a big thing you know you had you had the brotherhood which was pretty much Aryans white people yeah you had you had the Hispanics and they did have a little bit you know some of them were considered their south side or north side or Uh Serenos, Nortinos yeah but they were always had a truce while they were in you know they were just all one group yeah even uh, the North American Indian League nail is what uh-huh. they called it. they had their own group and it really wasn't gangs. it was yeah. their groups. It yeah. was their people. Mm-hmm. It's who they sit with, it's yeah. who they run with That's and um, I don't know I don't, I'd almost call it clubs more than I'd call it gangs back yeah. then. Respect was a very, very big thing back then. You want respect, give respect you want you you want to get respect, give respect you know yeah. with mm-hmm. offenders and staff alike, you know, back and forth. Yeah. Do your own time was very big, yeah. very big. Almost unheard of now. Gotcha. You know? And I would say that a lot of that started changing. I mentioned it a little while ago. Mm-hmm. About the time I, was, I went to, I transferred over Max. We had an inmate named Brett Barron that had a real violent history with the department. Uh, we sent him to Arizona on an exchange program. They just get him out of here. And while he was in Arizona, there was a big disturbance down there that he partook in a big portion of that. Then Arizona want, didn't want no part of him anymore right. and sent him back to us. When he came back, he brought with him the, the Aryan Knights. And the Aryan Knights is uh, probably to this day probably one of the still most violent groups that we have. In one of our facilities, originating in one of our facilities, was a another group called the severely violent criminals. that is another group that is one of the most um, violent groups that we have and we do now have that clear separation from the 13s and you know 14s or the Serenos N- and Nortinos wow. and uh, being an Aryan knight you know you have to earn your bones or earn, earn your letters and that yeah. typically comes with assaulting somebody that they pick Most assaults that take place now with the security threat groups are within their own groups. For failureing to do the work, cleaning up their own crew, you know, something along that line. Yeah. Very rarely do they cross lines. It happens once in a while, but it's pretty much the violence is within their own group, yeah. and it's um, about enforcing the rules or or not putting in enough work or bringing enough money forward from their drug trafficking or mm-hmm. so forth. I, I don't see that as a departmental problem on its by itself. There's only so much i as an administrator can do to hold those guys accountable to separate them to do something about that issue i consider it a community problem
0: yeah
1: uh, even though it's happening inside the facility i'll give you an example one thing that i have seen change for the better over the years is in 2003 they enacted the prison rape elimination act prior to that it was just considered the norm if you're going to go to faci- if you're going to go in prison you're probably going to get raped unless you're stronger than everybody else, right. you know. Yeah. And law enforcement, corrections, everybody just saw it as, you know, it's, you know it it's happens.
0: It's part of it, yeah. It, yeah,
1: it's part, of the, mm-hmm. it's part of the prison experience. Right. And it should not be. Since the Prison Rape Elimination Act, there's there's standards that have been set. There's been uh, protocols that have been put in place. There's required prosecution for those that perpetrate a, a sexual violence in, oh. against another person in a correctional facility. Yeah. And everyone has, you know guidelines they have to follow with that yeah. and it has really brought that to the forefront that n- no it's not, it's not part successful. of the normal yeah. culture now uh-huh. it's the same thing with violence the, the violence if you were in Ada County if an inmate's in Ada County and he gets a fight in there they'll charge him uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know if you and I get in a fight downtown on Main and A Street they'll charge us right. we'll get arrested we'll be taken to Ada County uh-huh. out there they lose their tv it's it's not prosecuted yeah. it's tolerated right right now prison violence gang activity is viewed as the norm just like priya was prior to 2003 yeah i foresee that having to change in order to affect culture and change yeah. not just in idaho in america mm-hmm. that we need to take accountability and and not turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. I can say that recently, in the last couple of years, the FBI has utilized RICO for some STG groups. And I can tell you, when those indictments came down, I think there was like 20-some of them. I don't know if you remember that happening. Yeah, Yeah. When that happened... It was like dead calm at the facilities for a while. It really was. Yeah, it is. made all the difference in the world. Uh-huh. But as time goes by, it's forgotten about a little bit, and they think, you know, that they're continuing to get away with that. Yeah, You know, there's always the possibility FBI could come back with some more. I think that America needs to take a strong look at that. And should we tolerate these things happening in a correctional facility? We do not tolerate it happening in our communities. Right. So, but along with that, I do want to add that there is many, many, many more residents out there that do not want to be part of that. They want the good things that we come up with. They want to participate in the debate club. Um, You know, we bring bring somebody in from Boise State to help with that. Creative writing classes. Mm -hmm. American Legion Post. Uh I used to give orientation to new offenders coming into the facility. Now we use an offender mentor group that speaks to them as they come in. And they help guide them through, steer them clear from the bad waters, um, give them good advice. They do their own presentation, invite them in for coffee to do this presentation. They're heavily vetted guys, and uh, they're ones that have been extremely successful. And like I say, they're part of this group that do not want to be part of that bad culture. The majority of the offenders out, out there do not want to be part of the bad culture. But the problem is, is that bad culture is what's got us staying busy in a reactionary mode all the time, and it makes it more difficult for us to bring these good things forward. Do you you understand that? Absolutely. It's like 90% of the problems occupy 90% of our time, and we got to find ways to increase the good and do away with the bad. So
0: You know, I, I toured ISCC in, I think, in March this year and saw the murals that were painted along I yeah. think E-Block. Uh, was that a program that you kind of fostered? Or? You know,
1: I think Randy Blades is the one was that approved that first. Yeah. yeah, I did get involved with it. I'm from Camas County, uh-huh. and right there at E-Block, and you can actually even Google yeah. Jay Christensen ISCC, and you'll find a. You'll find an article in the Weekly Beaver. That's our local paper written by Marshall Ralph. It has pictures of that mural that are actually parts of Fairfield. (laughs) And uh, the building that's right there that, you know, looks like an old... When it went into Facebook and that paper and stuff, started getting comments. I took piano lessons there when I was a child and things like that. So uh, those are all pictures that have either been provided by staff from different parts of the country or taken off the Internet. The other uh, wing has national parks in it. If you go out into the so foyer cool. where a lot of the offenders would wait while they are going to parole hearings, uh-huh. you'll see the Boise train station there. You know, typically in the past, we, you'd see bald eagles or, you know, a bear, or, you know, something <laughs> along that line. The idea behind that is these are all things to look forward to being able to see as part of your future. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah they are so beautifully done. They and are, it they just are. reminded me of, and, like, the murals that were painted out here by, by prisoners.
1: Today. Yeah, like, like and, you know, and We've had, I think, one vandalism uh-huh. situation in, what, seven years? Wow. That, wow. that, that has occurred on those. Six years yeah, that's so occurred so well on them. Well respected. Yeah. And, and it, it, it was repaired. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, they do. They respect it. Um, you know, I, I know they had a graffiti problem in Los Angeles for a long time. And what they started doing is local, hiring local artists to paint over the top of them. And it stopped it yeah, you know, yeah. in, in certain areas. Totally. Yeah.
0: That's like up at Table Rock. We manage those grounds. and. You know, we, they were getting tagged all the time, and so we actually hired local graffiti artists to paint murals on the sides of these buildings of, of iconic Boise, you know, locations. So it's it's prevented it because people respect yeah. that and still oh, like right? Freak Alley here
1: in Boise exactly. is one of the most visited yeah. areas. Oh, absolutely. yeah, it's second to the BSU Blue. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah,
0: Sector Seventeen. It's great. Yeah, kind of going back. I just wanted to talk about the. Transgender population within IDOC, and we were just talking about kind of the sex assaults and things like that. Is there any different way that you treat members of the population that are uh, trans? Or
1: there are some steps that are 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 good quality steps to take that we yeah. we, we do our best to remain neutral yeah. in how yeah. we address them, mm-hmm. and and a lot of times out of respect for their situation. Yeah. Uh, We let them shower at a different time during the day, you know, a a lot of times during the count time. We are dealing with uh, commissary issues, and I believe probably within a week or two, uh, everything that's offered on the female side will be offered on the male side as well. So the commissary will be gender neutral as well. Um, And if a a guy wants to uh, order a flat iron, Uh he can get a flat iron. Still, right now to this date, that if they are original gender that they're born with is where they how they are placed in the department. There there are some states that have four different uh, sexes that would be male to female, female to male, and male and female. Okay, but uh, we go by their you know their their original gender. Um, We did have one a couple years ago that went through gender confirmation surgery, Uh and when he went through that, became a female and was moved to Pocatello. Uh, so it, that's still something that's evolving every day. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, uh, the adjectives that the, the staff uses sometimes, you know, we're in a male facility and we say, hey, guys, you know, right. yeah. and it winds up offending some. And so we try to encourage to be as gender neutral as possible all the time yeah. uh, because they're, it, I don't know as if it's uh, more common now, are just more accepted now and more prevalent. Yeah, you know? yeah. So back then, I think maybe it was hidden uh-huh. a lot more. Another thing I gotta say is that it's not it's not just the, it's not just in the, the offender population. We uh-huh. have it. In, we have oh, in the staff. Yeah. We have it in the community. We have it uh-huh. in our schools. We, it's. I went through a course uh, called Certified Public Manager, uh-huh. and I remember a specific class where they were talking about uh, employment rights. And he talked about the you know the, the the different level different classes that you have to be careful with the discrimination, and when he came across on on sexual preference, uh, he said that is not considered one of the protected classes, but you should treat it as one. It's yeah. eventually going to be there, God. and uh, I believe the city of Boise has enacted some laws to protect that class as well. I don't think it's statewide yet, but 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 that was a very smart statement, I think, and yeah. and so. That's something I've always tried to follow, yeah. is to consider it a protected class.
0: Just interesting how things going on in the bigger community kind of reflect. I've got to say, I've
1: got personal friends that are in that category as well. Uh-huh. So, yeah. And people that I've worked with for a very long time. And yeah. like I say, they're friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Nice.
0: So, you're not the only person... In your family that works for the department, you have a, a son who's a parole officer, District 4, uh, probation parole, and you said a nephew that also works within corrections. Yeah. What's it like, you know, Thanksgiving Day? Do you discuss your work, or do you have a, a work relationship with your family members? Do you discuss Yeah, no Yeah, so my,
1: my son, the only thing he's known his father as doing is being in corrections. Uh-huh. When he was in BSU, he got a job at the state capitol being security guard. And then when he became involved with his his current wife, he needed to get a more serious job. And that was during a time that our staffing levels were really good and it was like one of the only times that we didn't even have openings for correctional officers. But they were opening the correctional alternative placement program south of town. That correctional alternative placement program was being opened up by largely retired staff that I were was friends with. And so uh-huh. I knew a lot of them. And I, I said, hey, Nicholas, you should apply out there. Uh-huh. I, I, I know all these guys uh-huh. and uh, they'd be great to work for. And so that's what he did. And he actually advanced through his career there up, uh-huh. to, up to Sergeant. And then when we did the opening, the transition from ISCC to, uh, from private to state, uh-huh. they put out announcements, what they call open competitive, where anybody could apply for any rank from the outside. And he applied as a sergeant to work for the state. And they actually brought him on fairly early. And, yeah. and he, was, he was more of the transition than I was. He actually wrote all the post orders and field memorandums for that correctional facility during the transition time. Yeah. Then after I started as the deputy warden over there, the personnel determined that it was a, you know, a conflict of interest for me to be in the same facility as, as my son yeah. And uh, so he uh, sought a change and he went to probation and parole. And he's been very pleased with that. He does a lot of instruction at Post. He's an Archon instruction with his self-defense, okay. you know, and arrest techniques and control. That's what Archon stands for. Okay. So he's an Archon instructor and he actually travels the state to teach, teach Archon. Um, Is he built like you too? You know, he's a little bit shorter than he's me, but uh, he's always been very physically fit, yeah, and, yeah. and handles himself really well. He's more of a communicator gotcha. than yes. a, a physical person. He's a—he's the softer side of me. He okay. probably gets it from his mother more than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then there was a—you know—a Thanksgiving, uh, my niece had brought her boyfriend and I started talking to him he uh, was working for I believe it's called Canada Security uh-huh. where uh, I recruited him to come to work for the department took him out to the facility and toured him through the facility and uh-huh. he applied and he's been to work uh, he's 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 still working and I, and I lost track I think he he's back at ISCI but was at IMSI for a little while but yeah. that, his name is Dane Dane Circle uh-huh. nice. and so he's still with the department in 2010 I I I did go through a divorce and and um, l- little less than a year I started dating somebody that uh, that uh, I, I I fell in love with and uh-huh. I'm actually engaged to her. We were supposed to be married last year in oh in uh, Italy. Everybody knows what happens there. Yeah. And uh, so you know it was maybe Vegas here in a couple months yeah. or so. Well congratulations. <laughs> well thank you. That's great. She had a son that was working as a um, doorman or bouncer uh-huh. at uh, downtown and uh, I'd watch him get ready for work where he'd press his pants and everything and I'm thinking man he'd make a great officer you yeah, know yeah. And then when I found out how much they were paying him down there, I thought, hey, you should come to work for us And he, he went to work for us out there and uh, he, he did a, I mean he did a terrific job. you know yeah. he's, he's just a solid floor staff member and, uh-huh. but he recently left because they had a child and he's now a stay-at-home father. Good well, him, right? uh, and and the wife earns the bacon for the family <laughs> yeah. She's a she's a nurse, uh-huh. and uh, so she has plenty of work, you know. Oh and yeah, yeah. Jeez. So um, my fiance is a teacher. Okay. So I come from a family of essential workers, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. During COVID, none of our work hasn't changed much, oh, you know. Now, gosh. for her as a teacher, it has. A lot of her classes were last year had become were remote. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Not this not this year. So. Okay. Yeah, I've had a lot of family in it. And, and it and you'll find that that's the case. I believe we've got I think we've got a third generation hammer out there right now uh-huh. <laughs> I started with Ralph Hammer. huh His son was Brian Hammer and I believe Brian's son is working for us out there at one of the facilities now. yeah yeah so and, and that's not out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, we have several staff that have you know generations in, in the in the facility. Uh-huh. One of the staff that uh, worked for me, uh, his name is Ward. He Uh, said he has uh, had a relative that worked here. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. We actually interviewed him on this podcast, Jeremy Ward, right? Jeremy Ward, yes. Yeah, yeah. And his his grandpa was a captain out here. Yeah. And I've got a great photo of him. And yeah, and and then his grandpa, or his great grandpa, and then his grandpa grew up here as the son of a guard and grew up on the prison grounds. And his name's Bob. And uh, I'm planning on having both of them come in and talk to me a little bit more about, you know, his his job and how it's evolved in the two years since I've interviewed him. And yeah, yeah, and, and, so
1: and Jeremy Ward's another one of those prime examples that, yeah. you know, he's not built like me. He's, yeah. he's not a very big guy, uh-uh, yeah. but he's one of my top officers. He he's really great. is. Yeah. I mean, he's a good communicator, mm-hmm. hard worker. He's on that schedule. You don't worry about where he's going uh, that day. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Now, can you talk about the recent
0: changes, the improvements to pay and benefits that have occurred?
1: Okay, let's go back to when I started.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. When I
1: was going through my academy, my pay was nearly minimum wage. Oh. yeah. I, I think it was three sixty-five an hour when I was in the academy, and the minimum wage back then I think was three thirty-five. <sighs> now I got a two-dollar an hour bump when I when I graduated from the academy, and uh-huh. I actually was placed full time off OJTE, uh, so that was you know a pretty good sized jump. But fast forward to today, uh-huh. right now is the first time I have ever seen us on par with Ada County. Yeah. Ada County starts out with just a few cents higher an hour, but we have a signing bonus and a retention bonus that comes around annually now. And that I, I consider that a major, major yeah. accomplishment that we can now compete with our local jurisdiction. Uh-huh. Like I talked about, laws are still enforced in the county jail.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some laws that include violence that we had to put ourselves mm-hmm. in the middle of, out there are not. Violence yeah. begets violence, you know, yeah. um, when, yeah. when especially when there's no accountability behind it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to go back to saying, you know, that's a small group of our, our guys. Right. Just like 80-county jailers, mm-hmm. they couldn't just close the doors when COVID hit. We couldn't either. I mean, a lot of the public are really not aware of what, what our staff do. Oh, yeah. A lot of public just don't even know about us. Mm-hmm. They talked about essential workers. You know, they were giving credit to your EMS, your firefighters, your teachers. They were giving credit to the uh, the people working in the grocery stores. Uh. They were giving credit to the people working in the convenience stores, which credit is due to all of them. And I think that they were all going to work during that time. But so were we. Yeah. And how often did you hear our names Uh, (sighs) when when it came when it when it came to the vaccinations? We did qualify early on January of last yeah. year, but the offenders was really controversial around the United States. Do they even deserve it? You know, that, right. that's what a lot of people are thinking. Well, yeah. whether you feel that way or not, they're in close quarters. Mm-hmm. Social distancing is difficult for them. We have to provide them all with masks. We have to enforce them wearing the mask. A lot of times they're in dormitory situations. Mm-hmm. And our staff, that go home to their families every night, work amongst them all day long. Right. You know, I don't think a lot of people even gave that any consideration through all of this. In, in my opinion, they should have been amongst the first, right up with that vulnerable population to receive vaccines.
0: Yeah.
1: But we were amongst the last nationwide. Right. Not just here oh, in Idaho. Yeah. Nationwide.
0: Absolutely. Have, Oregon, have
1: they been, has it been administered to prisoners out there, the vaccine? It has been has, now. Oh, yeah, wow. But we were even yeah. after the 12-year-olds were yeah. offered. So okay. Uh, a lot of work and a lot of changes have gone into uh, since COVID has come in. Mm-hmm. Cohorting is a big, big piece of it. What I mean by cohorting is that only the same group of offenders ever have contact with the same group of offenders. And you try and do that with the same staff working with those offenders yeah. too. So if you, have a, if you have contact tracing that goes, you try to limit it to one cohort as much as possible yeah. if there is somebody contracted COVID in that group. Yeah. The uh, dormitories, I mean, that's just difficult to have small groups of, yeah. of, uh, of cohorting in there. And uh, with staffing shortages, it's not always possible to cohort your staff. You know, it'd be, it'd be great if we had a facility that had lots of flexibility in the beds, what they call wet cells. You know what uh, I mean by wet cells? I don't. Okay, so there's, you've got your dormitories, you've got your cell units, and in your cell units you've got dry cells and you got wet cells. So like Unit 13 out at ISCI, they're all dry cells. Oh. It means they have gang bathrooms. And they, and that, they just, that's just a plumbing terminology. Yeah, okay. That means they have multiple showers, multiple toilets and stuff down in the bathroom. They all come out of their cell and go down to the bathroom. Okay. They typically have control of their door. Gotcha. Wet cell, you close it, you lock it up. They have their bathroom and their sink and everything in there. Gotcha. Utility port, you can hand food into them. Okay. And so then you can, you can truly, truly isolate those yeah. in the cells. In a dry cell, I mean, it's still different than a dormitory. You have to let them out and go to the bathroom, and now they're all mixing. Right. So south of town, I'm like the only facility that has general population with wet cells outside of maximum security institution. Yeah. You know, you take a look at our mass testing. It shows that, you know, the maximum security institution did really well keeping it isolated over there, but they do have those wet cells, and nobody is in a dormitory situation over there. So it, it works really well if you have that capability. Because I'm one of the only facilities that has those wet cells that can be isolated, I became the statewide COVID facility. Gotcha. An offender come up COVID in Kootenai County Jail. He put in a vehicle and brought to me. Oh, man. There was even some times that we did receiving diagnostic in our facility, and we're not a receiving diagnostic unit. We brought in a group from RDU. And uh, uh, from Ada County and we had to create our own RDU not staffed for it we're short staffed in the first place so it was my operations sergeant was in there I think I had one floor officer one R&E officer response and escort myself, my captain my deputy warden we're in there for that a fight breaks out and so here I am uh, in clothes dressed like this and I'm breaking up a fight (laughs) and and uh and so i mean a lot of us have had to make a lot of changes this past year there's yeah. been times that you know i've gone in as worked as an officer this past year and so has a lot of the other administrators yeah, yeah. you know all the way up to my chief and deputy chief and they've come in and assisted wow. as well at different times during this uh staffing crisis and then covid and we, you know, we've experienced some pretty extreme shortages so this so these so these raises and these be, new benefits that that you're seeing the retention benefits big win for us yeah big win yeah. and what we've noticed since the introduction of that is yeah. almost every week our amount of applications are doubling okay so, so it's it's about. it's really really it's helping beneficial uh, and I heard on the way here. I heard an advertisement for Snake River Correctional Facility, uh-huh. which they do start us out as more. Yeah. Uh, we are a right-to-work state; they are not, they are and indeed. so their their department is unionized. And so much of what happens with employees and and protocols and everything in the correctional facilities is union controlled. Yeah. You know that the, the union plays a lot of interference with what the administrators do there. And um, so as a result, the uh, environment is not as desirable. I've got a lot of friends that work over there, and um, they tell me, uh, you know, that the work conditions really, really suck, but the money kind of makes up for it. Yeah, know? that's what, I've never yeah. felt that uh, money was so badly needed I'd go to a bad work environment. Yeah. So uh, the one thing we can offer is a better work environment here yeah. and and uh, not controlled by people that are not, that should not be in the prison business. right. So. You asked me about the programs earlier. Yeah. And I, I mentioned uh, uh, the mentor the mentor program. I, I've always said I do not think there is a magic bullet out there to yeah. fix people. I, I don't think there's any one magic bullet. Mm-hmm. What works for this person here yeah. may not work for this person. Yeah. And you have to find things for everybody. Yeah. And so what I tried to do as a warden, and this is pretty much pre-COVID because a lot of this had to stop. As uh, I tried to find so many different options, different things they that they, they, they could do, whether it be through you know a music program, through I, I mentioned like the debate team, the, the creative writing, I don't remember the name that they changed it to, but we even had a drama class. They didn't like the name drama. Yeah. We had I think it was a high, the high school drama teacher came out, and they put on a they put on a play, you know. And, uh, but they didn't like the name drama, so they changed the name from drama <laughs> to something else, which is really a drama class. Mm-hmm. Uh, chess club. Oh, um, and yeah. we, uh, we, uh, oh, another thing, and you may have noticed this when you went through your tour, um, very ironically that this is something I presented at a nationwide wardens conference is, here, a couple years ago, I had my uh, administrative support manager buy me 450 plants. In what appeared to be terracotta, but they were plastic. Yeah. Just 450 plants. I distributed them through the tiers. And as you walk through the corridors out there, you saw like some rubber plants and stuff in the halls and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. The idea is to make it look so less sterile. Oh, right. Make it more, you know, like what you would want to see in the community or maybe in your own home. Right. Colors and, you know, things like that. Oh. And when I presented this at the warden's, I showed pictures of all the plants on the tiers and stuff like that. You, you see all the wardens from the rest of the states, their jaws like open up. They're not hitting each other over the head with it. They're, well, well, are they hiding stuff what? in it? Yeah. You know, how, how much damage have they done with that? Or are they throwing it around? Are they breaking it? You know, and they were shocked. Yeah. They were they were shocked yeah. that I did that. And I haven't had a single problem. Wow. They found it something to take care of. Right. It, they some of them even named it. There's a couple of units. They've got it growing all around the walls, around the wow. windows, and wow. everything. And it's just there's one unit that looks like you know like an Amazon rainforest yeah. to how much it's yeah. grown down there. Jeez. And so uh, it it just adds a little bit of color, life, and normalcy yeah. to That's to the it. unit. There's there's units that we've taken uh, and and I got to give credit to Randy Blaze. He's the one that did this. I came in one day and found my coffee table out of my office was gone uh-huh. was a deputy warden. Well, he put it on a tier. Oh. with some couches. <laughs> I was skeptical. Uh-huh. I thought those couches wouldn't last a month. They're still out there, Jeez. you know, uh, years later. Yeah. And they take care of them. They uh-huh. do a mandatory cleaning of them every now and then. They've, they've knitted afghans for them. Wow. And they got that coffee table. They have it scooted far enough away from the coffee table that nobody can put their feet up on the coffee table. Yeah. Coffee table still looks nice. Wow. It's got magazines spread out on it. They all sit around. And when you'd walk the tears before... It's a yeah. different conversation than if you go in and you sit down on that couch and talk to them. Yeah, bad. yeah it's like walking to the coffee shop and talking yeah. to somebody. So I nicknamed it Blade's Bistro.
0: <laughs> it's amazing just the little changes within the environment that can improve the morale. Like,
1: Yeah, uh, we've got one group. But uh, we started American Legion Post 201 out there.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Put a flagpole out in the activities yard, which is pretty rare. You see in a correctional facility because they have ropes. Uh-huh. But this one is telescoping and locking. Mm. And so they have a honor guard, and the honor guard participates in a lot of the graduations we have for GEDs. Uh-huh. I always try to get a, a good a good speaker to come out. For instance, our last one was David Leroy. Yeah. Did a tremendous job. I've had uh, President Trump out there. Not President Trump. President Trump. From Trump. B- yeah, B- yeah. B- yeah. B- yeah. B- I
0: was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wow! Uh, but they always come out and they do a great job. They always talk about what honor it is. They, they're taken aback when they find out about you know our educational programs out yeah. there and and how much they've accomplished. And we sometimes we'll have guys in their fifties or sixties that are just now getting their GED and they never accomplished that before. There's so many different things that we do out there that I really wish we could get back to because that was like the the wind you would always feel that would revitalize you. Yeah, um, we yeah. had the ADAPI program that you know we had canines out there that uh-huh. uh, they were basically um, trained to be good pets yeah. uh, for the humane society. Humane society has suffered a lot of problems during throughout this too, and but one of the good things is that a lot of people adopted during this time because they were home uh-huh. and they just don't have had the, the the canines to give us back since then. Oh. You know? um, and and to put the program back into play. Yeah. We've had a meeting and we're talking about possibly doing a rehab program out there for some dogs that need to go through some rehabilitation because we've got some pretty knowledgeable trainers out there with, yeah. with canine. Yeah, they pay to do it if uh-huh. they could, you know? Yeah. They they really enjoy it. They missed the, they miss the dogs being out there. Dogs had like a calming effect on the oh, tear. You walk a dog on a tear and it just seems to bring oh, down the tension.
0: Yeah. yeah. I was lucky to tour a couple of years ago isci and see the, the dog training and mm-hmm. yeah it was it was just so it was such a a strange thing to walk in you know through these very sterile feeling cell houses and then to come to this one and this dog comes up and greets me and you know yeah. and i'm just kind of chatting with prisoners and just yeah. seeing the joy on their face and yeah just like wow
1: those american legionnaires um you know yeah. throughout this covid uh, they were the ones that volunteered. They stepped up to do a lot of the cleaning. They uh, they sprayed what's called Preventex uh, once a month throughout the facility. They set up a mask-making area. Yeah. They made over 15,000 masks for, for state employees, for vendors, for schools. Yeah. Uh, a couple different school districts they provided masks for. They made a lot of gowns. They keep track of the hours that they put in. Uh-huh. They uh, run very, very... Formalized, very professional meetings. Um, they take it very serious. They feel as if they're giving back to the community, yeah. and it will revitalize a lot of their hope that they had lost in the past yeah. to be able to do some things like that. Yeah. You find something that a guy can pour himself into. Mm-hmm. That's the best thing you can do, rather than have idle hands. You know, singer Yeah, there's an old saying. I don't remember what it is. It, idle hands is a Devil's Devil's tool or something yeah, along that yeah. line, but uh, the more things you can find that somebody can get involved with, uh, you're not going to have one program that everybody's going to join. You got to find all kinds of different, you know, opportunities for them. Yeah, so, we
0: we would love to do as much as we can to, uh, out here at the old pen to contribute to some of these programs. So yeah, if you, have, you know, we were meeting about uh, having some hobby craft items sold out here made by. The residents out there and you know anything along those lines we'd love to
1: contribute yeah, so to. there was one tier that I that was considered to be a problematic tier oh. in one the units and in the past it had earned the name as gladiator school yeah. and, uh, so yeah. I wanted to change in that culture in there and so one of the things I did is I took all the day room tables out took a, and had maintenance go down and put down uh, epoxy finishes on them these epoxy finishes made them look, look more like and maybe not granite, but more of a residential type of table, even yeah. though it's the steel still table, uh-huh. reinstall them, put some couches in there, put some cabinets in there that, you know, that they can lock their hobbycraft in, and I allowed them to order uh, non-traditional hobbycraft-type items. Yeah. kind of. We were getting to the point where we were going to do some leather work and and some other things like the model building yeah. and things along that line, and, and then COVID hit, yeah. and, and it kind of changed our population mix all over, but... But uh, that unit actually became very well-behaved, and, and we did that work through incentives. The ones that were the bad actors were no longer, longer allowed yeah. to live in there, and some of the other bad actors on the other tiers decided they wanted to live over there and became less of bad actors. So, I mean, that kind of goes back to is we need to create more and more of this good to decrease the bad, but, but that, we're still always going to have that bad.
0: Well, I'm, I'm really hoping, you know, with this improvement in the benefits and pay for officers as you're getting all these uh all these folks applying and, and joining your staff then hopefully you can bring those things
1: yeah
0: back into force and hopefully covid will be a yesterday's uh, problem
1: and... I, I believe you know liz neville at the women's correctionals but uh, oh East yes yeah yeah, yeah 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 she's been the one that's selected to replace me i'm oh, very excited i'm very excited for her that's right she's just she's wonderful oh, with people you yeah. know and uh I think she'll be able to bridge that communication gap that I, yeah. I I was never able to master. She's really a very strong advocate for staff. Yeah, And I I, I, I wish her well there. I've still got the rest of this week and yeah. a couple of days next week to spend with her. I've known her since she was a brand-new officer. She started for me and at the Maximum Security Institution uh, close to 17 years ago. Yeah. She's always... She's been terrific, and so I'm. I'm real happy for the facility I'm leaving. That they got her. Yeah. I think it's a big win for, for the facility. That's and uh, uh, you know, I, I wish her the best. And I, I, I keep telling her she can call on me anytime she needs. And uh, we've always made jokes that I'm, you yeah, I'm her work father. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's important to have though. A Good mentor. Oh gosh, you can go a long way with that. Yeah. Well, I think you've, you've shared an hour and a half of your time with me already. Is there anything else that you think that the public should know about corrections in Idaho? And what makes the Idaho Department of Corrections unique amongst the, the country? And you've, you've been in this career. You've seen so many different transitions. Like, What do you think the public should know?
1: Well, I think uh, when it comes to the Department of Corrections here in Idaho... Uh, one, you know, I talked about our safety record. Mm-hmm. Number two, I think we're probably, even though we're in Idaho, a fairly small state con- considered to the rest, I think we're extremely progressive in uh-huh. in uh, our facilities. I, I can tell you that our, our leadership that we have right now, they are probably more open to new ideas and um, new programs and anything, you know, that, that we can do to increase that good that I'm talking about. Yeah. And we've got some absolute great leadership. I, it would be bad if I did not mention Josh T. Walt, our director right uh, now, uh, that, uh, that he has, in his time as a director, he's increased the wages much more than I have seen any other director yeah. in, uh, uh, gain increases for us. He's been the uh, conductor behind this entire orchestration, going clear back to when even Kemp was, Kevin Kemp was right. the director. And I can tell you that every director I've had has always brought something to the table. May not be the same as the next director, but they all kind of bring a specialty to the table. Yeah. And uh, I think Josh G. Walt has put a great team together, and I think there's some good things for the future for our, for our department, even though I believe our department is one of the better-run departments in the country. Because I have spent time with lots of other states yeah. and uh, compare notes, talk about you know how they're doing, how we're doing. I think we're very unknown, but we're there. We have to be there. And our staff don't care about the recognition, you know. It it doesn't matter. We'll be there. We'll be there whether we're known or not. And uh, the work, the long work, the long week, the working through the weekends, the holidays, the evenings—that's all done to keep our community safe. Mm
0: -hmm. So much respect for all the officers out there, and especially during this last year. Wow. Wow.
1: You know, very difficult last, last year, but difficult. last 18 months. Yeah. You know, it's been very, very difficult on the staff. Mm-hmm.
0: You know. wow. Well, your last week, do you have any big plans for retirement?
1: Well, I would like to make up that marriage that I missed <laughs> <Yeah>. last year. <laughs> <laughs> and how optimistic I am in my <laughs> retirement paperwork, I filed married filing jointly. So oh. I better get married. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm building a new home. I bought some acreage and I'm building a new home out there. I'm looking forward to that. I've got a real estate license and I plan on uh, selling some real estate. Got a couple dogs. I just love playing with all the time. And so we, I still. I mean, I do that every day. I, I like to, you know, like continue having that part of my daily routine to okay. yeah. spend time with the dogs. As a matter of fact, I posted a, a video on Facebook over the weekend where the two the two dogs and myself were walking across this bridge over the creek, and said, my new job, walking the dogs. And oh. a lot of comments about that. Say, great job.
0: Nice. That is a so good So
1: I enjoy doing uh, some of the work that I've been doing, developing my ground. Like I yes. bought excavation equipment. I'm doing a lot of that. So I might do a little bit of that. But, you know, I'm not really sure. Yeah. I'm not really sure, and I'm not that worried about it. <laughs> that I have to do something next, but I do have some trips planned. Yeah, going to Canada, oh, going to nice. uh, for Thanksgiving, going to Mexico for for Christmas, going to Vegas for oh, New Year's, and uh, you know, hopefully one of those places will tie the knot. Yeah, know, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to the trips, finally getting out of town yeah. since all of this started. Oh, you know,
0: well deserved. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on your retirement and. Thank you for all the years of dedicated work you've done for the It's been a pleasure. It's
1: been a pleasure. It really has been.
0: Well, we always end with a a little saying, if I were to say do your own time,
1: how would you respond to that? Do your own time goes back to what I was talking about. (laughs) Respect. Respect, yeah. And and the the do your own time means let me do it without your interference from you. And those bad players I talk about. They're incapable of that, you know. (laughs) They have to interfere with other people's time. But there are some people out there that, you know, what do your own time means, and they do do their own time. But, yeah, it goes back to that respect thing.
0: That's great. All right, everybody. Do your own time, do your own number, and we will talk to you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.